Well, good morning, everyone. Hopefully you got some sleep and you are ready. So we're going to go this morning into some practical case studies. Page uh, 21 in the book. We're going to practice applying what we saw yesterday, particularly to the question of work, but before we get there, also to the question of marriage. But what's God's will for you in work? I wonder if you've wondered that. What job does God want you in? Uh, more than that, actually, what are God's concerns with you with everything that relates to your work? It makes sense that you would care about work because, let's face it, it consumes almost all your waking hours for almost all of your life. That's something that you can change, isn't it? Now, 100 years ago, the idea that you could choose a career or change careers was quite strange. You would just do whatever your parents did, or you would just take whatever job you could get. So very few people in the world have ever gotten to choose their career, or to choose how much or how little they work at it, or when they would retire. And so this morning, as we consider God's guidance and work, let's uh, let it lead us to realise the tremendous privilege that we have, not to feel guilty about it, to but to really rejoice in it and praise God for it. So what's God's will for you when it comes to work and to marriage? Let's pray and ask him to guide us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in Jesus. You've revealed who you are. you revealed your plans for the world. And you've revealed how you want us to live. And so now, Lord, by your spirit, through the gospel and through your scriptures, please teach us what it is that you would have us be concerned about when it comes to these issues. Change our hearts that we might desire the things you desire and help us to live lives that please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's just quickly recap what we've seen so far. So the first thing to remember in any decision is that God is invisibly guiding everything according to his purpose. Now that we saw, it doesn't mean you can just be flippant. Ah, it doesn't matter. Because God's will might be to teach you a painful lesson not to be flippant. But you can trust God, knowing that he's in control. And then last night, we saw how God guides us through his scriptures. And so remember 2 Timothy 3.17, there in your booklets, page 21. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Whatever decision you need to make, the Bible is all you need to make that decision in a way that pleases God. And so we, we saw a, a three-step approach to, to applying that to our decision. Step one, to ask what bits of that decision fall into matters of right and wrong. Step two, what is wise. Then step three, that tells you which of the aspects that are really just trivial. And there'll be elements of each of those in every decision. Having considered all of that, you just prayerfully make a choice, make a decision. Well, this morning we're going to practice thinking it through with some practical case studies. And before we get to the topic of work, we're going to talk about who you should marry. Now, if you already have a wife or a husband, that's the maximum number you're allowed. God's will for you is just to stop right there. But actually, even if you are married, who knows what your future holds? You might one day remarry. 
Or maybe you'll have a son or a daughter that needs to consider this as well. And, and not many decisions have as big of an impact on your Christian life than whether you marry and who you marry. The other reason it's a great thing to dig into is because it's a fantastic illustration of what we were seeing last night, the way that knowing God's plans shapes what's actually wise to do. Now you can see that in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So page 21 there, Paul's talking about marriage. And in verses 8 and 9, he says quite clearly, it's a wisdom question, whether or not to get married. It's not a right or wrong question. Verse 8, now to the unmarried and widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So do you see, it's good to stay unmarried and it's good to marry. Look at verse 28. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. Neither option is sin. There's not a right and wrong thing. Whether or not to get married, you're free to choose. But Paul says it is a wisdom foolish thing because Jesus is coming back soon. That's the reason. I wonder if you've seen how that connects with whether or not to get married. Look at verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Jesus is coming back soon. The time is short. So wisdom says it's actually better to stay single. It's actually better to stay single. Verse 32. An unmarried person, unmarried man, is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. Whereas verse 33, if you get married, turns out you have to pay attention to your wife as well. Do you see what Paul's doing there? Do you see how he's using God's plan for the world to shape his wisdom? Paul knows that God's plan for the world is to glorify Jesus by bringing people to know Jesus and by making people more like Jesus. And so what's most wise if that's what God is doing? Well, people need to be saved. Paul says you can do more ministry. You can do more evangelism. You can be more out there. Give more time to it. Go to different places. Take more risks. You can do all those things better when you're single than when you're married. And so Paul says it's actually wise to stay single for the gospel. If you, brother or sister, find yourself single here this morning and you are able to stay that way and give your time to building God's church, Paul says that is a wise decision. Except if it's not wise for you. Look on the next page, verse 36. Paul says if your passions are strong and you can't live that life, then it is wise to seek to be married. Because God wants us to be holy, not just really good evangelists. Do you see how God's plan is shaping the criteria for wisdom? Now let me give you a subtle example that I think some Christians have made mistakes on. It's the wisdom of who to marry. Now I think by and large we tend to know the right and wrong. Most of us, I hope you know this, you, you can't marry someone who's not a Christian. Look at verse 39, it's quite clear here. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, there's your freedom, but he must belong to the Lord. He must be a Christian. Let me underline this again, this is really critical. Verse 39 says, you are free to marry anyone you want, but they must belong to the Lord. They must be a Christian. If you're a Christian, 
And if the person you're considering marrying is not a Christian, it's not God's will for you to marry them. Now, once you're married, if you become a Christian and, and the person you're married to is not a Christian, well, God, Paul actually discusses that and he says it is God's will for you to stay married as long as they'll have them, as long as they'll have you. Be a good husband, be a good wife. There's one of the things that we know. We know that it's right or wrong about marrying someone who's not a Christian. We also know from the Bible four other, three other things. So they must be a Christian. They must not be the same gender as you are. They must not already be married and not a close relative. They're the matters of righteousness. And I think by and large we know that. Where we often struggle is actually the wisdom issues. You see, God's plan is that I will look more like Jesus. So what does wisdom say should be at the very top of my list when I'm looking for someone that I will marry? If you're a parent, what sort of person do you pray and dream that your children will marry? Someone who's rich? Someone successful? No, it's someone who's godly. If you're going to live together for 50 years... You want to be together with the person who is most going to help you be like Jesus. That's wisdom, isn't it? If that's what God's plan is for you, that's what will help you to put God and his plans first as a family. Look at Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. It says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, there's nothing wrong with finding someone attractive. I think that's a good thing, if you can have that as well. It's just not the most important thing. I think sometimes young people, young Christians, can think they're not shallow, they've moved past that, because they care not only about looks, but also about personality. You haven't quite got there. Because look what Proverbs 31 says. Charm, that's personality. What does it say about charm? It's deceptive. Personality can be deceptive. They can tell very funny jokes. They know how to be polite to your parents. Well, those are good things. That's a good start. But actually, those things don't really tell you anything about their character deep down. What they're like under pressure. What they're like 10 years into marriage. If they fear the Lord, if they actually have a godly character, you see, beneath personality is character. And if they have a godly character, that's a far more valuable thing in a marriage. When the cancer diagnosis comes, when your six-month-old twins are screaming in the middle of the night once again, personality goes out the window. But character is what's there in that moment. And whether your husband or wife is godly, that will make a far bigger difference than their looks or their personality. So there's some wisdom. Put at the top of your list, I want someone who's godly. And then, as to the actual question of who that you marry, whether it's Martha or Mary, well, as long as you're thinking rightly about the right and wrong stuff and the wisdom stuff, then you're free to choose. Paul says, you're free. We saw that. Verse 39, free to marry anyone you wish. Now, before we move on, let me just say something to those of you who are already married. What's God's will for you in marriage? Be faithful to your husband and wife, husband or wife, either or either, and be godly. Be faithful and be godly. Now, it's complicated in some cases. And 
We don't have time to go into it, but sometimes it is actually appropriate to separate. If you think you're in one of those tricky cases, let me encourage you to talk to a pastor, help get their advice, get them to help you think it through. But by and large, God's will for us once we're married is to be faithful and godly, no matter how appealing that other woman or other man is. That's not God's will for you to be with him or her. In fact, Proverbs says that path leads to death. It's possible that some amongst us might be on that path or taking steps towards that path. This morning, let me encourage you to end it, if that's you. Bring it to light. Confess it to a pastor or your growth group leader or someone. Deal with it urgently. I I spoke to a man in our church on his deathbed earlier this year. He's now died, gone to be with the Lord. He told me his biggest regret was that he thought he was upgrading but he says it destroyed everything he had. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, that the grass is greener where you water it. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Let me just speak to the husbands for a second. You made promises to your wife. God wants you to show up and keep them. Pray for her. Do nice things for her. Seek her enjoyment of sex as a priority even over your enjoyment of sex. Invest in your closeness. If you need to, get counselling. If she thinks you need to, get counselling. Be all in. Let me push this one more step. I'm talking to husbands here. I trust you if you're a wife, you can make the translation. I said this yesterday. Let me push it um, today. The biggest investment you can make in a marriage is in your own godliness. This will make a far bigger impact on your family and it's far more important to God than how much money you bring in or how much fun you are as a parent. And so I said yesterday, I think I'll say it now, it's Wednesday night. Your wife is tired. The house is a mess. Should you stay home to serve your wife or should you go to growth group? I wonder what you think. I want to make the point that going to growth group is serving your wife. Going to your Bible study, going to church, that is serving your family. Now, of course, there are going to be occasions to stay at home. Sometimes it is appropriate, and that's a, that's a decision that takes wisdom. But don't think you have to choose between serving your spiritual health and serving your family. The biggest thing that you do as the parents, particularly if you're the head of the family, the man, The biggest thing you do to serve your family is to make sure you are growing spiritually yourself. Now, there's a lot more we could say about being godly husbands and wives. And as I talk about this, I'm conscious we all are very aware of our failings. So let me encourage you, be honest with your brothers and sisters, your pastors. Get prayer, get wisdom, get support. And and gee, rejoice in God's forgiveness and his kindness and his mercy. Hey, amen. Let's move on to the topic of work. Do you want to stand up and have a stretch or you're good? I think I'm going to get you all to stand up, do one spin and sit down. Come on, you're not too good for it, Pete. Come on. Pete, 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 Pete. Poetry in motion. Okay. Work. Oh, sorry. Work. 
Page 23, what is God's will for us in work? Such a big part of our lives. Well, let me start with four wrong attitudes, four wrong attitudes that the world has about work. Why? Because generally the attitudes of our world end up the attitudes of us as well. So here's number one. Work is identity. Our world assumes that someone's identity and status in life revolves around their work. When we meet someone, what's one of the first things we ask them? What is it you do? One of the reasons we do that is it's useful. It actually tells you crucial pieces of information about them. You find out, oh, they're a brain surgeon. That means I know that they're clever, they work hard, and they had no life from 16 to 30. (laughs) You meet someone that washes dishes, and you say, okay, you're probably not a genius. Maybe you dropped out of school early, except that's ridiculous, isn't it? Because there's a whole bunch of reasons someone might wash dishes. In fact, I saw in the Sydney Morning Herald, some people get paid $90 an hour to wash dishes. Which maybe means you're currently thinking about a change of career. (laughs) You see, a person's job tells you actually nothing about the most important things about them. Isn't that right? Their character. But even more important is when we start, even more problematic, is when we start to see our worth tied up in what we do. There's the first wrong attitude. Work is identity. You start to see your worth is tied up in what you do. Second wrong attitude, work equals satisfaction. Work is where I go to get fulfilled through helping someone build a great house, through caring for someone while they're in hospital. I get to knock off at the end of the day knowing I've done something worthwhile. Often, it's put in terms of fulfilling potential. Your boss will say, gee, we see a lot of potential in you. It would be a crime to waste that potential. It's good for the boss, isn't it? They get more out of you. Often we can assume that I must enjoy my work. Any job that I don't enjoy, I should leave. In all of those ways, we're assuming that work is actually about us and about our satisfaction. The third attitude that the world has is that work is about power. With work, I get money. With money, I get power. Power to have someone else cook a meal and deliver it to me. Power to have someone else do my cleaning. Work gives me power over my circumstances. I can save up enough money to protect me from whatever might happen. Ultimately, work gives me power over my life. I can buy the things I want. I can do the things I want. And finally, fourthly, work equals evil. One of the assumptions our world makes, because we get told, warned so often about greed. We can start to assume that anyone with money must be evil. And so when we get money, we feel guilty. There's four assumptions about work. But as we look at what the Bible says about work, we're going to see that they're all wrong. Let's have a look. Page 23. I don't know why that verse is down the bottom of that page. (laughs) It's a good verse, though. I'll read it again. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Page 24. As with everything, we start by remembering that God is in control. James chapter 4 is a wonderful passage for people like us. Listen to this. Now listen. You who say today or tomorrow will do this or that, will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist 
that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. You make plans for your career, plans for your finances. You feel fully confident that you'll carry them out. But what, what are you? You're a mist. You're like the fog on the bathroom mirror after a shower. There one minute, gone the next. So never forget who really is in charge. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Now this straight away blows up the assumption that work is my identity. Because the job that you do is actually not so much a reflection on you as it is a reflection on God. Because God is the one who gave you that job. Now this will help you think through job interviews if you go through that. It's normal, everyone gets nervous. But whether or not you get the job is actually up to God. That helps as well with unemployment. Good chance many of us will go through at least some period of unemployment. What can happen is you begin to feel worthless. Everyone around you is busy. They have money, they can buy things, they can do things. But me, what do I have to get up for in the morning? And you can end up feeling bad, not just about your work, but about everything. Because we so buy the lie that our work is our identity. It's not. Your identity is that you are a Christian. And so remember God's sovereignty. God is the one who gives and takes away. Your job as well as the breath you use to do it. And it also helps us think through the question of power, doesn't it? Does job equal money equals power? No. God is the one with power. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, where does certainty lie? Not in wealth. You can lose it in an instant. I have a friend built a business the government changed one law overnight. The job that he did and the business he had didn't exist anymore. It was worthless. That could happen to you. Who knows if we're about to have a big recession. I actually wrote this talk in October last year and things were going up. Now they're going down. Inflation could get out of control, eat up all your savings. You could lose your job. Bank could take the house. Share market can crash. Even Bitcoin. Maybe especially Bitcoin. But do you see, wealth promises you security. It just can't actually give it to you. It's here one day, gone the next. But God, he never changes. And so we put our hope in God. Okay, so as we, we think about work, we start by remembering God's invisible guidance over all of our lives. But what about his visible guidance? Well, the Bible has heaps to say. Let's have a look. Start at Genesis chapter 2, and what you see in Genesis 2 is that God works. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he was doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Our God is a working God. In fact, God continues to work today. John chapter 5, verse 17. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working, says Jesus. And all of this means that work is good. In the ancient cultures, the Greek gods, they didn't work. They lazed around. They were served by lower beings. And so work in the first century was considered a fairly lowly thing. But Jesus had calluses on his hand, didn't he? He was a carpenter. Because God is a worker. However, notice that God also rests. In fact, the climax of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is God's rest. We saw that in verse 3. And so work is good, but its goal is rest and relationships. Now, because we're made in God's image, we also work. So page 25, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is before sin enters the world. Work's not just the result of sin. No, this is before sin. Because just as God works, so do we. Work is, in fact, one of the ways we express our worship of God. But the problem was Adam didn't worship God in his work. Instead of working to tend the garden, Adam ate from the tree. And so notice the punishment in Genesis 3. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it because you did that. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For to dust you are, and to dust you'll return. Because of our sin, the ground is also cursed. And what that means is our work is also cursed. It's frustrating and futile and painful. And I'll come back to that thought, but I just want to point something out. If you look in Genesis chapter 3, this is in my notes, but in our world today, people want to make it that men and women are equally workers and men and women are equally parents. And there's truth in that, of course. But as you read Genesis chapter 3, what you notice is the man is cursed in his work and the woman is cursed in her child-rearing worth reflecting maybe there's more of a difference there between men and women and their roles than our world wants to think back to my notes instead of the pure pleasure of pleasing God now we wrestle with the ground instead of ruling it we battle with it and so verse 19 by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food don't we see the effects of sin in our work every day one of the effects is just the boredom of it, the toil of it. It's hard. It's dissatisfying. It's tedious because we live in a fallen world. In fact, no matter how exciting, if you're in uni right now, you're studying, you've got that dream job in your mind and you think, oh, when I get there, I'm just going to love it. Those of you who work in your dream jobs, do you love it? <laughs> Some of you do, okay. Not making my point. If, no matter how exciting the job 
If it wasn't boring after a while, at least in some ways, they wouldn't have to pay you to turn up. It's foolish to expect your work to be satisfying. Don't spend your life looking for the job that will fulfill you. Outside the garden, work is broken. In fact, Christians, I think, should give up the idea of a career altogether. Christians don't need careers. We get jobs. You see, a career is something that gives you identity and it fills a hole inside of you and gives you purpose. Well, as Christians, what is it that gives us identity, fills a hole inside of us and gives us purpose? It's Jesus. And so Christians get jobs. We don't have careers. And we see the effects of sin in the workplace everywhere. You see it in unfair bosses, dishonest employees. You come home from work with swear words in your head that you don't want there, but they're said constantly around you every day. And the battle that we, we engage in with work, against work, is a battle that eventually we lose. Because Adam, who should have ruled over the ground, now returns to the ground. Instead of subduing the world, the world subdues us, we, we die. And I'm sorry for the cold dose of reality on a Sunday morning, but everyone that we've ever helped dies as time passes. All the buildings that we've helped to build, they fall down, and it all comes to nothing. That's the picture of work in a fallen world until you meet Jesus. And Jesus actually fulfills the command in Genesis to rule over the world and to work it and to bring order to it. See, our job was to rule over the world. Jesus came as the perfect human and did our job. He fulfilled or he did perfectly what we failed to do. And so Jesus in his work is everything that we're not. Jesus perfectly finished his work on the cross. Jesus' work actually does fix the world. Jesus' work actually will last forever. And so Jesus is the perfect worker, so you don't have to be. And do you know what? In the new creation, all the effects of sin, all the effects of the curse in Genesis 3, they'll be erased. And so in heaven, we will work. We will work in heaven, but we'll enjoy it like we're supposed to. With the, in the new creation, we'll rule with Jesus perfectly and it'll actually be very satisfying. Now, what does that mean for us now? Well, is work our identity? Now, as I said, Jesus is our identity, not our work. So what's your career? Your career is to belong to Jesus. Your work is to belong to Jesus so that one day in heaven, you'll actually get to rest. There's the picture of work in the Bible. And so as we make decisions about work, let's do our three-step thing. Step one, what are the matters of right and wrong? Well, we'll look at some of God's commands about work. Number one, God actually does command us to work. Come to, uh, what page are we on? Page 26. Come to 2 Thessalonians Chapter 3, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we didn't have the right to such help, 
but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Do you notice there why it is that we work? We work to eat. Not for our own fulfilment. And so if you like to eat, if you need to eat, if you want to eat, make sure you work. God commands you not to be idle. And one reason for that is that being idle actually can lead to sin. Look at verse 11. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the bread they eat. So there's one matter of right and wrong when it comes to work. We are commanded to work. Now, what if you find yourself unemployed? Well, you do have a job to do. What's your job? Looking, finding a job. Very good. That's your work. And so if you are unemployed, I think you should work the same hours as other people. Nine to five, Monday to Friday. Fill out job applications. Do training courses. Go to interviews. And then, after you've done an honest week's of work, looking for work, then you can rest like everybody else. I think that'll help stop it becoming just a big blob of, I don't know what I'm doing, but I feel guilty all the time. What does this mean for mothers? I wonder if you've experienced this, if you're a mother, if you're not yet a mother, I think you'll, you'll experience this. Lots of mothers think that they need to go back to their, their job because they feel that they're not working. In fact, lots of their friends will say to them, when are you coming back to work? It's the expectation. But if you're a mother, even though you're not being paid, you're actually working very, very hard. Motherhood is your work. Now, Paul would give the same advice. Don't be lazy. Be rich in good works. So there's one of God's commands for work. Now, there's another um, of God's commands that I've just mentioned there, actually. God says to work hard. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Now, this is written to slaves, but lots of what he says can be applied to the question of work. Verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. You see, God cares about how you work more than he cares about which job it is you work in. Because he wants you to bring glory to Jesus and be more and more like Jesus. Now, your workmates ought to know that you're a Christian. And how would it bring honour and glory to Jesus if they all gossiped about you and said, that Christian is so lazy? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are saved to do good works. We're not saved by our good works, thank, thank God. But we are saved for good works. And your job is a chance to do good. Whether it's nursing or driving a bus, what you're doing is contributing to society. And so whether or not the boss is watching... Do it for Jesus with all your heart. Third command. I think we're on page 27. We must not work in jobs that involve sin. Maybe you come this weekend wanting God's guidance on whether or not you should take that job as a thief. 
Well, I've got a very clear answer for you on this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Some jobs for us as Christians are out. Jobs that have command breaking inherent in the job. So I'm sorry, as a Christian, you can't be an assassin. You can't be a drug dealer. You can't make adult films or send, sell pictures of yourself on websites. You can't own strip clubs, casinos, gambling companies. If you're a doctor, you can't perform abortions. It would be better to lose your job than to break one of God's commands. Now, those ones are quite clear, but I think sometimes it's less obvious. Some jobs... Well, the work itself doesn't require you to break the law. The work itself is fine, but the way it's done is sinful. Perhaps it's dishonest or or breaks the law. For example, in some businesses, it's common practice to bill the clients for more hours than was actually done. Now, I think that's lying. I know some Christians have found that every single employer expected that of them. They ended up changing to a different sort of work. I actually think there's another option. You could try just raising your rate and telling them that's what you're doing. I'm going to charge the proper rate and bill you for the actual hours I do. You'll find I do it in much quicker than my competitors. But if you can't do that, if your job requires you to lie, another friend that I know was a bicycle courier. The, the time that he was expected to do his deliveries in was built on the assumption that he was breaking road rules. Crossing red lights. I can't do it. I can't break the law. As a Christian, that job was out for him. Had to change jobs. So do you get the idea? If the job requires sin, you can't do that one. Fourthly, Ephesians chapter 4 gives us another thing where to do with work. Oh, that, that, that third one is quite tricky to apply, I think. Talk about it with other Christians. I have a friend who makes, works in the um, film industry. Finds sometimes what they're working on is, is grey. Questionable. Very tricky. But worth working through. We want to please God with something that we spend so much of our life doing. Fourthly, we want to use work to be generous to others. That's one of God's commands. We actually just saw it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. One of the best reasons to work is so that you can have money to be generous and help other people with. Now, sometimes when you're younger, you can think, I don't have much money to give. When I have money, I'll give money. I think that's not quite right. I think it's far easier when the amounts are smaller. Get into the habit then, and you'll find that that habit continues. Because it's not about the amount, actually. It's about you. It's about your heart. But what actually often does happen is as your income increases, what happens? So do your expenses. Very often our standard of living actually increases much faster than our standard of giving. You see, what can happen is sometimes people cover their own needs and desires first and then they decide how much they'll give away out of what's left. But actually I think you want to flip that around. God owns all of my money. God has given me this job. He's given me this money to use to bring Jesus glory. And so perhaps before you choose where you live, what car you'll buy, what your phone plan will be, 
Perhaps first you work out how much will I give away? And then you'll make your lifestyle fit into your generosity. This is so hard for us in Australia. The great sin of our culture is greed, which means the great sin of our culture is lack of generosity. Maybe you can just think for a moment about how much you give away. I wonder if you've made your giving fit into your lifestyle or if you're making your lifestyle fit into your generosity. In the Old Testament, they actually had a law, 10%. Now, as Christians, we're not under that law. But what would it tell you about your heart if the Old Testament people who didn't have the Holy Spirit, who had never seen God's generosity to us in Jesus, and who didn't see the enormous need to get the gospel out to all the world, what would it say about your heart if they gave away more than you do? Now, don't hear me giving a law about a certain percent. I'm not. Because God doesn't. Where God hasn't commanded, we're free. But I do wonder if that comparison is a useful starting point. If you find it hard to even give 10%, could it be that your heart is actually too much in love with the Australian lifestyle? Could it be that you're not trusting God to provide what you really need? I'm preaching to myself as I preach here. Do you need to do radical surgery in the area of generosity? Do you need to say, I'm going to give up you fill in the blank because it costs too much. I'm going to downgrade that. I'm going to rethink those plans. Let me speak about buying a home for a second. If you buy a home, if you upgrade, if you renovate, beware of trapping yourself into a situation where you couldn't be generous even if you wanted to. Now, I know it's, it's hard out there. Houses are getting really, really expensive. And I actually think, financially... It's wise to buy a house. I think that's financially wise. It, it, it may not, though, be wise for you. Look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8, page 27 there. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Proverbs 17, 1. Better a dry crust. with oh, I don't want to eat dry crusts. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. You know, it could be the case that to get the house or to get that certain sort of house, you have to become so stingy, so money-orientated, that you get the place without becoming very Christ-like in the process. And what if it happened that the sacrifices you made in your Christian life meant that your marriage struggles? And that beautiful house is filled every day with coldness or constant fighting. You know, maybe if you rent your whole life, you'll always be poorer. You'll have the, the terrible inconvenience of having to move house every six months. But perhaps even live a simpler life, less comfortable, but filled with peace. If you do need to make budget cuts to get the house... Where are you going to cut? Are you going to cut your generosity or are you going to cut your lifestyle spending? Now, don't hear me saying it's wrong to buy a house. It's not. I bought a house. I think it's a great thing to do, if you can. 
But just don't assume that you need to do what everyone else is doing in Sydney. We're not like them. We're living for a different king. We've got heaven's our home. So don't assume that we need to have the same standard of living as everyone else in Sydney. It's not more godly to have gross stuff, okay? God's not out to get you. It's not, it's not a sin to enjoy things. In fact, we just saw a verse previously that God provides us everything for our enjoyment. He likes it when we enjoy things. But I do wonder if sometimes we can assume that just what everyone else has is what we should have. Brothers and sisters, one minute into heaven, you will not regret that you ate out less often or that you drove a shabbier car. One minute into paradise, you'll forget all about that. But you might regret that you didn't do more to bring people with you. Brothers and sisters, myself included, let's give ourselves to generosity. Now there's God's commands for work. Now, Actually, let me just say, some of that I said was under the heading of a command. We're commanded to be generous, and I packaged some wisdom in up under that, okay? God's commands for work, but what about wisdom? Let's talk about some more wisdom. Well, remember, wisdom is God's plan, and God's plan is for you to grow to be more like Jesus. So very briefly, let me give you a couple of little pieces of wisdom there. Wisdom would say it's a good idea to find a job that gives you time, leaves you time, to help out at church, to do ministry. A job that makes it possible for you to get to church on the weekend, to get to Bible study, and to continue to serve in ministry, helping build God's church. Because that's what God's doing in the world, isn't it? I know a friend who chose out of uni to take a far worse job as a nurse. Everyone else was going, this one, it's better training, better career prospects. She chose that one because it didn't have shift work and that meant she could commit to being regularly on the kids' program at church. I think that was wise in light of God's plans. As you get married and have kids, it'll get harder and harder to do things like teach scripture in school or other ministries at church. So if you can find a job that'll make that easier to do, that's wise, isn't it? Secondly, if you can, find a job that lets you preach the gospel while you work. Now, I'm not saying to steal time from your boss. If you're, being, if you're being paid to work, you should work. But some jobs give you the opportunity to explain the gospel even as you're working. What, what jobs can you think of that give you the opportunity to do that? Accountant. <laughs> I'd be surprised. <laughs> Maybe in the staff room. Lots of jobs, there's lots of time to talk to your co-workers. But actually, lots of the time, the, I'd imagine, um, accountant would be similar to a lawyer, be similar to... Lots of the time, you're not really talking to people about Jesus, you're counting. Well, I don't know what accountants do. <laughs> what, what jobs do you think do give you opportunities? Pardon? Some school teachers, getting harder and harder in the public system. Um, but, but if you're in a particular schools, there can be great opportunities. Yep. Scripture teacher. Yep, very good. And you know, we're one of the few countries in the world where you're allowed to just walk into a public school. I mean, you've got to set it up with a school and everything. <laughs> But one of the few countries in the world, in fact, uh, at our church, we've some, got someone who come from California to Sydney or to the Central Coast to teach scripture because it's one of the few places in the world you can do it. So if you can do it, take advantage of it. Good. What other opportunities do, do, do certain jobs give you? Sorry, what jobs give you great opportunities to do, preach the gospel while you work? 
Social worker, spending a lot of time with the clients. Being a pastor, yep, that does give you time to teach the Bible to people. <laughs> Come on, there's more. Yep. Yep, yep, that's right, working in a Christian organisation. Early childhood. Yeah, there's lots of good options. I'll give you a couple of mine. I think Uber driver. I've got a friend that drives Uber and he talks to people about the gospel all day. Hairdresser, perhaps. Do you know, I think one of the best ones is being a builder. One of the guys in our church back home who's seen more people converted than other people that I know is a builder. And, you know, all day while they work, they talk to each other. They talk about the share market, they talk about the footy, they talk, they talk about Jesus. And he's seen a bunch of people converted. Here's one that I that I really think is worth mentioning as well, motherhood. Now, it's obviously not an option for all of us. Um, some of us, because of biology, actually, yeah, it, it can be a very painful issue. I shouldn't make a lot of it. Some people it's not an option for. But one of the best jobs I've ever seen for being a gospel preacher is being a mum. The world downplays the role of mothers because the world revolves around money and mothers don't get paid. And so, as I said, all your wife's friends will say, when is she coming back to work? And she'll watch her friends get on in their careers and she might think, I'm not doing anything very worthwhile. But brothers and sisters, that's so not true. The opportunity to teach the gospel to your children day after day. Wow. To shape the lives of the next generation of God's people. That is really what God's on about, isn't it? And that's before you even think about the time that they'll spend talking to other mums at swimming lessons and in the playground. Some of the best evangelism you'll ever see. Now, I'm particularly pointing this out because I actually think for our mothers to do that, our husbands have to value it as well. So let me speak to the husbands again. Wouldn't it be sad if actually your wife kind of would like to do that, but we had chosen a certain lifestyle that had locked us in to not being able to do that? Now, I know that it sometimes can't happen for a number of reasons. But if you can manage it, if you can pull it off, or even to go from full-time to part-time, or from four days to three days at work, or three to two. If you can manage it, what a powerful thing to enable your wife to do, to be a full-time gospel preacher to your children and the families in your life. I think what I've just said there is quite controversial because I've particularly addressed it to mothers. I don't have time to go into why, but I think it's biblical. But I think husbands can do that too as well. But I think there's a biblical reason why I've, I've particularly shaped it that way. There's one application of that wisdom principle. If you can find a job that enables you to preach the gospel, that is really wise. Okay, thirdly and fourthly, more briefly, find a job, thirdly, that pays you well. Money's not evil. If you've got two job options and everything else seems much the same, choose the one that pays better. Might as well. And fourthly, choose a job that you like. Now, this is low on the list of priorities because we'll never find our satisfaction in our work, but some jobs will be easier for us because we like them. God's not out to hurt you. There's no prize for choosing a job you hate just for the sake of it. But do you see where this comes in our decision-making? How different is this way of thinking to the world's? Most people start with number one, what job do I want to do? And then they ask, where do I need to study? Where do I need to live to do that job? And then last of all, if they think about it at all, they ask, 
And I wonder what churches are there. Godly decision-making flips that all the way around. Where will I serve God? What church will I plant myself in and partner with to grow and to serve God? Okay then, where can I live so I'll be near that church? And then what jobs are around there that will allow me to do that? There's four pieces of wisdom. And so finally, step three, what are the trivialities? The trivialities are whatever particular job you do. That's really very trivial. Lots of different ways to do good in the world. And so finally, after we've studied the Bible, we pray, we make a prayerful decision, and we know that God's in control. And so we pray and we ask him to use our actions for his purposes. Well, let me finish with just one different kind of a challenge. Because there is actually one path that you can take where you don't take a job at all. It was mentioned before, actually. It's the one where you're paid not to go to work so that instead you can give all your time to preaching the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about not having to work to eat so that he can give all his time to doing ministry. You see, every Christian is to do ministry. We're all gospel preachers. But there are some people who are freed up from the need to go to their job to earn money so that instead they can do that full-time as a pastor. And brothers and sisters, as we heard yesterday, the need around the world, and actually the need in Australia as well, is enormous. There are churches sitting there in Australia without pastors. Dozens of them, maybe even hundreds of them. Now there's a question of wisdom. Is that right for you to do? But as you look at what we've seen this weekend, God's plan to save people through Jesus, that means that Jesus needs to be preached. And so as we were challenged yesterday, what's a good reason for you not to do that full-time? I actually think there are some good reasons. Number one, you must not do it if you think that's the only way to serve God. If you think that working for a church is the only way to really serve God, you must not do it because you've misunderstood something. I've been trying to say all the way along, you can serve God in any job. Here's another reason you must not do it. Your character. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says gospel workers must have characters that are above reproach and it might be that you're not a mature enough Christian to lead God's church. Now he might grow you in that so you might not be off the hook just yet. <laughs> and the third reason that you oughtn't would be your gifts. God makes a body with many parts. Everyone has different gifts. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3 says you must be able to teach, got to be able to teach God's word. Also to make disciples take some communication skills, some relational skills. And God has gifted us all differently, which is a very good thing. And we need some people to go to work to raise the money. There are lots of different body parts. And hear me on this, please. One is not better than the other. But do you have the character, or are you growing towards that character? Do you have gifts? Or maybe I should put it this way, do other people say you have the gifts? Should you give your life to full-time gospel work? It's not too late. In fact, I had lunch yesterday with a man who became a pastor in his 50s. Seems like he's done a lot of good for the Lord. Is he still here? He's gone home. Yeah. It's not too late, no matter where you are, to change course. Let me encourage you, if you think maybe that's me, or at least I should think about that, have a conversation with Pete, and he'll help you sort out whether or not that's a wise decision for you or not. Just say, hey, Pete, can we talk about perhaps doing MTS? For lots of good reasons, most of us won't do paid ministry 
And that might be what Pete helps you work out. But for all of us, we are all to serve God full time with our life. God is God. He's on a mission to bring glory to Jesus and we are all to be on that mission with him. And many of the Christians that I know and admire most are full-time workers, fathers, mothers, young adults, doing their best to make everything revolve around Jesus, his glory and his mission. A part-time builder, but a full-time gospel preacher. 40 hours a week as a teacher, but all of my heart as a servant of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we've only got such a little bit of time on this planet, we'll spend a very big chunk of it working. How exciting that in our work, wherever it is, whatever it looks like, we get to be like God, we get to do good, we get to grow to be more like Jesus and to help people be saved by him. All for his glory. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, please help us to please you in our work. Amen.